0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code, other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, And you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content Always available on demand with no syncing That's the Stitcher app Go download it at Stitcher.com Free of charge Available for your iPhone, your Android Or your tablet computer And don't forget to enter the promo code Other people when you register This is an app You can apply it Go and get it Oh
0: my god
2: You are not alone you
1: have found other
3: people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
3: I think it's really beautiful. Gee, stated did what? A struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
2: And now here's your host, Brad Listing
1: just one person at just one time, right? Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is coming together at the last possible moment. This is potentially worth sharing. How are you today? It's nice to be with you. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. My guest is Juliet Escoria. She has a new book out called Black Cloud. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. Uh, we had a good talk. You're going to hear it in just a second. Uh, what am I doing? I'm back in town after a weekend of travel. I was down in Louisiana, as uh, I think I mentioned on a previous episode or two, uh, I was there for a family wedding this past weekend. It was a good time. Uh, you know, the traveling part can be a little bit chaotic. American airlines on the way out, uh, they screwed up our seat assignments so that, uh, we were scattered all over the plane. Despite the fact that I had, uh, purchased them and selected seat assignments together. So it was me, it's my wife, it's my three-year-old daughter. uh, And then suddenly we're all over the place and that led to uh, some emotional disturbance. My daughter started crying on the plane. You know, she was scared that we were going to have to sit apart. And it was crowded on the plane. People are trying to board. Uh, You know, I'm trying to flag a a flight attendant. It's hectic. And then I started tweeting uh, angrily at American Airlines as this was happening, which is not something I normally do. I'm not the kind of person uh, who likes to issue customer service complaints publicly on social media, but, uh, you know, I'd heard from friends of mine that it actually can be helpful and that you get a faster response, you know, on social media than you might, if you're like calling customer service, which is always a nightmare. So, you know, I don't even know what I was hoping to do. Uh, maybe I was hoping for, uh, like free airline tickets or something, a cash reward, which I did not get. So anyhow, it was beautiful down in Louisiana. We got perfect weather and, uh, you know, life seems easier down there, but then life always seems easier whenever I travel, wherever I go, because usually uh, when I'm traveling, I'm in vacation mode. Fully or partially, you know, some form of vacation mode mentally. So, you know, life in that circumstance is objectively easier for me, and then I think I project that feeling onto whatever place I'm in. I think that's what's happening. Is there a way to uh, like actually quantify this objectively? You know, I'm sure that life is easier in certain places than it is in others. It's easier to live. But then again, you know you have miserable drug addled suicidal plastic surgery millionaires living in mansions, and you have uh, people living in comparative squalor in like third world countries who are singing and dancing and smiling and seem uh, to be more spiritually centered and and seem to be enjoying life to a greater extent. I don't know how it works. do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to say that the people who live in comparative squalor wouldn't like to have a better standard of living. I'm just saying they seem happier sometimes. How is that possible? You know, Uh, it's like a change in location does not equal uh, a change between your ears. It's that whole thing, but it's tempting to think that it might. It's always tempting. So uh, I got to hang with my family down South. I have a huge family and in a wedding context, It's a a little overwhelming I feel like I got about 90 seconds with everyone I barely talk to anybody with any degree of depth or substance I have dozens of family members Aunts and uncles, cousins, friends of cousins Everyone's drinking Everyone's eating It's hard to wrap your head around it And it's hard for me uh, Personality wise To function in that kind of social environment yeah, you know, I'm a social person. I can be social. I can talk, obviously, uh, to people. But when there's that many people, I get overwhelmed. When it's that loud, there's a band playing, people are dancing. I'm trying to like shout talk to somebody who's half deaf. <laughs> it's too much. I prefer a small group, but I, you know, at the same time, I also uh, I, I love weddings. Got to see my cousin, uh, Amy get married. She married a very good guy named Phil and they seemed uh, really happy and that's great. Uh, my dad got a little tipsy. That's always funny to see. He almost never does that. And uh, he was giving me shit uh, because I left, uh, I left the, uh, reception before he did. I checked out before he did. <laughs> uh, I had to go check on my daughter who was back at the hotel with my brother in law. So Anyhow, uh, I'm back in Los Angeles after two consecutive weekends of travel, which uh, is tiring. It's nice, but it's tiring. And this trip to Louisiana also represented for me uh, the end of an incredible string of family obligations. It's been a very busy year for me in that respect. We had my in-laws out here uh, for the entire month of February. Not staying with us, but they were in Southern California, and then we had my little sister here, and then my brother-in-law and his girlfriend were here, and then my older sister came out with her kids, uh, her three girls, her her uh, her husband, Uh, and then uh, my wife's birthday, which stresses me out because I want to do a good job, Uh, I want to make her feel properly celebrated, and then there was this wedding, just nonstop since February first. All good stuff, all good people but you know you you throw all of that on top of uh, work stuff and family stuff it just gets to be a lot and now i am uh, fatigued physically emotionally and spiritually i need time to renew myself <laughs> i need uh i need some quiet time i need a spa treatment i need to i need some time to podcast is what i'm saying just me and my
0: microphone Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: My guest today, once again, is Juliet Escoria. Her new book is called Black Cloud. It's out there now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. We had a very nice, very easy. Very candid conversation, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. That's my prediction. So here she is, folks. This is Juliet Escoria, and her new book is called Black Cloud.
3: I am in what is my study, um, and it's a mess right now because I'm cleaning out my closet, like the literal cleaning out my closet, not the figurative.
1: <laughs> what are you? Why are you doing that? Just spring cleaning.
3: Um, yeah, and I'm moving, so that has something to do with it. But I'm not moving for a few months. I just like getting rid of shit.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm I'm with you on that. I like to purge. Yeah. So where are you moving to? And wait, where are you? Um, Where are you in Southern? I'm
3: in San Diego.
1: Okay, yeah. And and where are you moving to?
3: Um, to West Virginia.
1: No, oh, so you're moving to West Virginia. And you're dating, are you dating Scott McClanahan? Maybe. Possibly.
3: Yeah. I think you can confirm that on the internet. Okay. Um, so I'll
1: just stop being coy. Okay. And you're going to West Virginia?
3: Yes.
1: How do you feel about that? Because that's, I mean, San Diego seems like the more, um, what's the word I'm looking for?
3: Preferable?
1: Yeah. Normal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, or it just seems like softer, maybe a, a friendlier climate. You know, West Virginia, uh, there's a certain edge to it. Are you Are you nervous about moving to West Virginia?
3: Um, yeah, but I feel good about it cause like I grew up here and what like you said, it's nice and soft and like, that's nice. I needed to like come back here cause I was living in New York before this. Um, but I didn't want to stay here for that long and I didn't really care where I was going after, like I had stayed here for a year or two. I just figured that life would kind of figure it out and that happened. So now I'm going to West Virginia and that's A weird thing to do and so that's appealing to me and i don't know i kind of like west virginia like i think it'll definitely be a change but i'm looking forward to it west West virginia
1: it's beautiful it's beautiful i've hiked through west virginia so uh i know the terrain intimately or at least the part of the the terrain that the appalachian trail goes through It's it's a gorgeous place but it also um you know, I've also seen, like, the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia. Like, there's some, some crazy shit happening in those hills.
3: Yeah, there definitely is. <laughs> it's it's not like, well, it is, like, what you'd think of, um, but also not at the same time.
1: Yeah. So what are you yeah. going to do? What are you going to do out there? Do you have, like, a plan, or is it just I'm moving?
3: Um, well, I'm going to start applying for jobs at, like, colleges around there because they have a bunch, and then it's not, like, New York or something where there's a million academics. Um, so hopefully it won't be too hard for me to find like at least an adjunct job or something. And if not, I figured I'd work at the hot topic at the mall.
1: Yeah. Well, and you, what, what's the hot topic at the mall?
3: Oh, that's kind of a joke. Oh. Um, you know, you know what hot topic is, right? No, it's like, <laughs> it's like mall goth type stuff where you get like your punk rock t-shirt and like your runs with scissors t-shirt okay. and then you wear it cause you're an individual.
1: Okay, yeah, I get that. I mean, I do, I've never seen it, but I understand the general. Uh, I
3: think you should go buy some clothes from Hot Topic, <laughs> Brad. It'll it'll add some edge to your life.
1: <laughs> Something I'm sorely in need of, it seems. But uh, no, I feel like I, I I do kind of feel like that. I feel. I mean, just the fact that I didn't know what Hot Topic was, I think, speaks to a lack of edge.
3: Well, maybe you just haven't been to enough like indoor malls.
1: Maybe that's. The, I mean, I don't know. I'm from the Midwest. I've done some time in some indoor malls, but it was more like. No. It was more like Orange Julius and like Sabaro
3: <laughs> Okay. Well, I recommend you go to your local Hot Topic and buy yourself some Manic Panic hair dye.
1: Okay. Okay. So uh, I, I, wanna, I guess I want to find out more about your life. Uh, okay. San Diego, where you were born and raised?
3: I was born in Australia, but I was raised here.
1: Do you have an Australian parent?
3: Um, no. My parents moved there after they got married because they thought it sounded fun. And then they lived there for, I think it was five years. And then um, they didn't want to raise me there because they thought Australia was sexist and also they missed America.
1: Okay. So do you have Australian citizenship?
3: No, but I could. But I'm just like too lazy to go to the whatever it is, the consulate, I think, that you have to go to.
1: Wait, okay. You were born here. You were not born there.
3: I was born in Australia. Yeah. Oh,
1: no shit. Okay. So
3: But my, my dad, he wanted to make sure that I could be president if I wanted to be president. So he made sure that my status was a U.S. citizen born overseas. But technically I can have dual citizenship, but I'm just lazy.
1: So you have no desire to like go down there and expatriate or anything?
3: No, I want to. I just know how I am, which is, like, I can't even take my shoes in to get, like, new soles. So I can't, I like, I don't see myself doing that, even though I really want to, and I wish that I would.
1: Yeah. I mean, I you know, I live down there. I did a semester abroad, and it's funny that your parents found it sexist because I did, too. Yeah. And I'm not usually, I mean, not that I'm uh, some sort of, uh, you know, a hugely insensitive person who doesn't care about such things, but my antenna isn't always up in that direction. Like, I'm not... Uh, how, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, yeah,
3: you're uh, not paranoid about that kind of
1: shit. I'm not looking for it, you know, but like yeah. when I was down there, I was like, holy cow. Like the way that the guys in my uh, dormitory treated their girlfriends at this college that I was at was like noticeably less respectful than what I was used to back home. And like, the kind of treatment that they, um, gave their, uh, girlfriends would never have been acceptable to women in the United States.
3: Yeah. I mean, I haven't spent much time there. I went there like after I graduated college for all of 10 days. Um, but I've heard things from other people that confirm my parents' ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure there might be some Australians listening who would contest that, but it could, could just be cultural stuff. You know, the thing about it is that, uh, sometimes there's things that, you know, there's cultural shorthand and ways that people deal with one another that might seem really horrible to us, but that you know the women down there don't find offensive. Is that a possibility?
3: Yeah, I'm sure it is. I mean, there's you know two sides to every story.
1: So yeah, so okay so that would
3: make sense to me.
1: So you came back with your parents to San Diego, and you spent your the rest of your childhood. Well, up?
3: we went first. We moved to Arcadia. Um, my dad was teaching at Humboldt State. And then we moved to Columbus, Ohio, and then we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and then we moved here. And that was when I was eight, and we've stayed here since then.
1: Wow, so your dad's an academic
3: um sort of he's he's an env- environmental engineer, but he was working as a professor and he currently is now, but now he's teaching like weird business classes so and he also consults um for engineering, so he does both
1: What do engineers do? This is a yet another thing um, not, not only am I clueless about like hot topic, but I have a friend who's an engineer what the what the fuck does an engineer well, do?
3: He's an environmental engineer, and so like, I know that one of his big clients is a dry cleaner, so he'll go to the dry cleaners and, like, um, like where they're going to buy new property and tell them if it's um, hazardous or not, and then he'll do tests and tell them how to clean it up. And that seems pretty boring to me, but he's also done some cool stuff, like, he... Um, figured out how to take arsenic out of water by using cattails and like, you could just essentially use like a kiddie pool and put cattails in there and it would take arsenic out of water.
1: And you mean the, so pl- seems- the cattails, the plant, like,
3: yeah, yeah.
1: also, aren't they also known as pussy willows? <laughs>
3: um, I think pussy willows are like a plant with like little puffy flowers, but I could be totally wrong on that because I'm not a botanist.
1: Yeah. Y- yet another thing I'm unsure of, but okay. Yes. So your dad's a smart guy.
3: Yeah. He's smart. And And he also tries, like, he's a hard worker, like, really, really hard worker.
1: Do you have any of that? And do you have any any of his scientific bearing?
3: I can do math, and I was always good at science, and I like science courses. um, But I didn't like math courses because I thought they were boring because they'd already figured out the answers, so I didn't understand why I was supposed to. But I could do it up until 10th grade when I stopped going to school, really. Um, so now I don't know any math whatsoever um, so wait why'd you stop
1: why'd you stop going to school
3: because I had problems
1: what kind of problems
3: all of the problems really <laughs> well not all of them but like most of the problems like you know the problem like think,
1: the problems of adolescence substance yeah. food.
3: food um, I didn't have any food issues um but I had um, like I attempted suicide a bunch of times i was, like, big time into cutting myself, problems with boys, problems with anger, misbehavior, stealing, um, that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, so do you know why?
3: Yeah, um, like, because I was diagnosed as bipolar when I was 15, and that was a lot of it, and then you also... Like, I think if you know something's wrong with you, A, and then also if you get diagnosed at an early age, so you're being told that something is definitively wrong with you, then, like, if you're sensitive, um, then you internalize it, and then you kind of think you're a terrible person, so then you act like even more of a terrible person. Plus, I'm just, like, angry by disposition, so I think that has a lot
1: to do with it. Just inherently angry. I was born that way. Yeah, and that is sort of screwed up because, you know, you uh, have bipolar disorder, which is a real thing, and which, in my experience, which is limited and um, observational in nature, I don't have that, but I I have friends who do, and I've seen people go through it and be treated for it successfully with medication. And so, um, you know, as a person who is leery of treating the mind with chemicals or whatever, you know, uh, from a medicinal standpoint, like, I, I have to say, like, the medicine seems to work, at least makes life livable for people who are bipolar. Adult. Like,
3: I'm weary of it as well, and I've tried to not be on medicine. Because when I first got diagnosed, like a lot of the doctors would just, like, really dope you up. And so, you know, I wanted to do the opposite of that. So I've taken myself off medication and then taken myself off certain medications or as much medication, and then it does not go well. Like, I... Yeah. No, I, I can't function. I so. really,
1: I really feel strongly about this, or as strongly as someone who's like on the periphery should feel. But uh, if if someone's bipolar and they have decent medical treatment and doctors who are prescribing stuff, like stay on the meds. Like,
3: yeah, just, I mean, it's not fun because they have side effects, um, and you know they're drugs. But
1: what are the what's yeah. the alternative?
3: The alternative for me is being completely batshit insane and like ruining your life. Well, there you go. So I don't. I don't like doing that.
1: So do you think that these, like, the, these suicide attempts, like, were you ever close to succeeding as a teenager, or was it?
3: Yeah, um, like, there I attempted suicide four times, and two of them were, like, quote, unquote, call for help. And then one of them I tried really hard, but then, like, right as I was about to, like, lose consciousness, then I told my parents because um, I kind of figured I didn't want to die. And then the fourth time, like, I was fully intent on Dying, and it's
1: just I'm lucky that I didn't. So, what, what? How did you? What were you trying to do? Were you taking pills? Or
3: yeah, yeah. If I had known at the time that how um, like unreliable pills are as a method of suicide, I probably would have done something else. And I'm really glad I did not know the statistics on that.
1: So, yeah, that's heavy, man. And I feel like um, it, I, I don't know if you heard my conversation. With uh, Jennifer Michael Hecht, I believe I'm getting that name right, but she she wrote... was
3: the one that did the book about the suicide thing.
1: Yeah, it's called Stay. Yeah,
3: yeah, that was a really like I need to read that book. It's a terrific it's... book.
1: It's a she's a really you know she's a really smart person who did her research and mm-hmm. you know makes an argument that is like philosophically and academically rooted, and to me was very persuasive. Yeah, um, because, you know, obviously when you're talking to people, even like, you know, we know each other, we've met a couple of times, but obviously we're not close. And, uh, you hear somebody about somebody attempting to take their own life and you're immediately like, don't, you know, <laughs> like, Yeah. even somebody you don't know, it could be a complete well, s- stranger standing on a bridge and you'd be like, don't do it. Or, or I would hope someone would say that, but that, that seems to be the emotional reflex.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's, um, a reason why I like finally stopped is I kind of like got that, that even if someone didn't love me like as a person then they would be affected by it and it's like devastating like I had a friend who committed suicide a few months ago and we weren't close but it really kind of fucked with me and so like it took a long time for like the suicidal thoughts to go away but I stopped acting and when I was 18 I think was the last time.
1: God your parents must have been uh, crawling up the walls.
3: Yeah I mean they had it Pretty bad, and they're both like really, really nice people. So it's something that I felt extremely guilty about for a long time.
0: Yeah,
1: well, and, and was this like a, a? And this was directly related to bipolar. Like, were you in a manic episode or a manic phase, or
2: um, or, yeah, or, like or some, de-
1: depressed? Like, how does it work?
3: The most dangerous is called a mixed state, which is where you kind of have both. Like, you have the impulsivity of the mania, but you also have the negative thoughts of the depression. But a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was a teenager and they didn't know about, um, giving antidepressants to teens and also to bipolar people, which surprise, it makes you suicidal. Um, so like they put me on Wellbutrin and then a couple weeks later I attempted suicide, which is, you know, a good reason to hate the pharmaceutical
1: industry. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, is that, uh, you know, for all this talk about how medicine works, um, you have to get the meds Right. And if, yeah. if you don't, then it can have uh, bad consequences, to say the least.
3: Like, like I have a very, um, let's call it, passionate relationship with the pharmaceutical industry because I, they've fucked me over so many times that at the same point, like, I have to take them.
1: Yeah. So. Well, I mean, I think of, like, I mean, just to, like, point to a popular literary example, it's like David Foster Wallace was on those meds for years, which in hindsight kept him alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he goes off of them and then his receptivity to them diminishes. And then he couldn't find something that worked. It was, it was just like this tragedy, you know, like his brain chemicals were just so fucked. And, yeah, um, I, you know, and I feel like he, you know, he felt foggy. These side effects were bothering him. But I feel like it's almost like people who have to deal with this can sometimes trick themselves into thinking like, I can do without the meds. And it, I don't know.
3: Well, I mean, you, like, I have to look at it as a genuine illness, which is if you had like a physical illness, you would just have to take your medication, whether you wanted to or not. And so.
0: Good.
1: I like that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It took a, it took a long time for me to get there, but I got there.
1: Okay. So uh, you stopped going to school during this period as, as as a high schooler?
3: Yeah. I was, I like went from normal high school to this continuation school that was four hours a day. And then I went to this weird boarding school for bad kids. And then I went to a school where you had to go one hour a week. And by that time, I was a uh, sophomore when I should have been a freshman. So I, I mean, a senior. So I just got my GED.
1: Okay. And did, did uh, you know, as you were recovering from these attempts, and you were getting uh, like, were you, I'm assuming you were in therapy of some kind?
3: Yeah, I was in therapy. And then the weird boarding school I got sent to was a therapeutic boarding school. Okay. Um, and then even the continuation school, we had, like, group therapy once a week. Did it help? Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like therapy helps you if you try at it. Um, but it did. I think my parents sending me to that boarding school, like, kept me alive. Like, I don't think I would have stayed alive. Where was it? It was in Oregon um, in this town called Sprague River, which is about, I think it was 45 minutes away from Klamath Falls which most people don't even know
1: where that is. I've heard of it.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but okay, so your parents had the resources to help you though, right? hmm Yeah. A, that's a lucky my, thing. My
3: college fund went to that.
1: It did? Yes. Oh, I've got a young daughter. I'm just like, where
3: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think your daughter is going to be as fucked up as me. Well,
1: so. but your par- are your parents uh, fucked up? Do you have some sort of... Like no.
3: A- my, I mean, my parents are people and so they have their flaws, but um, they're both like really... Good parents, um, but I, I mean, like, do they fight? Mental... Do, they,
1: do they struggle with anything similarly? Like, a uh, mental?
3: Um, no, my parents are like the normal ones out of both their family. But there is like fucked upness and craziness
1: on both sides of my family. So it like skipped their generation and, and stuck to you. Is that basically?
3: Yeah.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I've seen that happen before. I mean, and, you know, every family's got a little bit of that, but some families I think have high concentrations. And then, especially when you have two people who come together and get married and they both come from families like that and the genetic predispositions there. Yeah. Um, did you, did you indicate this way from a young age or did it all sort of emerge as an adolescent? Like were you? Norm-
3: um, I was like, like I said, I was born like angry, like I was a cranky, cranky little kid. Um, But then from like kindergarten, like once I got in school, I was really, really good. And I succeeded at like everything sports. I had friends, I had perfect grades, um, and then around fifth grade, like when I started to hit puberty, it started to like slowly go south. And then ninth grade was like when everything just kind of exploded.
1: So, and this anger, mm-hmm. do you have a uh, do you have a, after uh, all these years of uh, dealing with it and uh, you know, the therapy and whatnot, like, do you have a handle on it? Like where it comes from?
3: Um, like most what? of the time.
1: What are you angry about?
3: Um, I don't know. Like most of the time, like I just am cranky <laughs> a lot and then I'll get angry at little things and kind of have to like tell myself that I'm being stupid.
1: Hot tempered?
3: Yeah. I mean, I've gotten like a pretty good handle on it. Um, but there's, I certainly have like a breaking point. Um, yeah.
1: You throw, st- I mean, like, you know, how does it manifest?
3: I used to like break stuff all the time I've gotten. Like, I think the last time I broke something was about a year ago, which, yeah, it was like a tall lamp and I threw it across the
1: room. Yeah. I'm fascinated by anger. Yeah. I find it, you know, the whole, the whole emotional process of it and how it takes people over and how you start to act out these, you know, it's like you become these negative thoughts and. Um, it's a problem for humanity, not just for you.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like if you are um, prone to certain, like, behaviors or emotions or whatever, then it becomes easier to fall into that rut. And so when I was kind of, like, engaging with the anger, I used to get a lot angrier a lot faster a lot more often. And now I've, like, slowly trained my brain to not do that as often, but it's still, like, a trait. It's not, like, a
1: behavior. And you, and you just always feel like shit afterwards. Like it's, it's like, yeah. it's like this sugar high, you know, like you, you get that, you get angry and then like you express it, uh, you shout or whatever it is, like you honk your horn and then it the returns are always super diminishing you know like but sometimes
3: i like laugh at myself cuz it's just kind of hilarious what i did
1: it you know if you like punch the wall and like you hurt your hand or like you get angry and like you trip and bang your knee or something and it's like damn it you know, like i see the comedy in that because mm-hmm. you're laughing at yourself but you know if you get into a fight with uh, your significant other with a parent or with you know anybody in your life it's just awful i hate that
3: yeah yeah i mean i've had a lot of guilt over my displays
1: of emotion before. Yeah. Well, yeah, me too. I mean, like as a parent, I think it's especially on my mind just because, uh, I want to be like a, a nice, calm dad. <laughs> uh, and I think I'm succeeding relatively yeah. well. You know, I don't want to, I just don't want to, I, I think that example is really bad, uh, for kids to see even in like small doses, you know, like, because yeah. like negativity is a, contagious. You know, you get angry, then the kid gets angry. Like either of your parents are hot tempered. Like, did you see,
3: um, they're not as hot-tempered. I wouldn't say that they've ever had, like, an anger problem, but both of them, um, like, speak what's on their mind and get upset about things and, like, have done things out of anger that were kind of um, comical. Um, like, not mean-spirited, um, like, um, but just comical. Um, I want to talk about something my mom did, but I don't know if she'll get mad at me. I guess I'll just say, like, she is an elementary school teacher, and this parent kept on parking in the emergency lane, um, and they kept on telling her not to, and she teaches in a wealthy district, so it was kind of like this rich bitch. And so she threw, like, temper temper I don't know how to say that word. You know the paint that doesn't stain? Yeah. um, On her car, um, which I thought was kind of hilarious, because it's harmless, but it's also, like, you're really not supposed to do that as a teacher <laughs> to a parent.
1: That's good though. I like that because like, yeah. you, but you create like this situation where the woman thinks her car is ruined. <laughs> yeah. That's It's like psychologically.
3: So uh, it's like a controlled angle, anger for them.
1: And, so. uh, and somewhat artistic splatter painting.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's creative.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I'm like, I'm thinking back to my parents, like, uh, not, you know, both of whom are very mild mannered, generally speaking, but my dad can get frustrated. And I remember, like, and it's like the little things, you know, very sort of Clark Griswoldy things. Like, be, like all the, like, I remember he used to freak out about packing the trunk of the car because we had too much shit and when we would go on road trips. And I remember we were outside of this hotel and he was trying, like, you know, we're all young kids. So he was the one who was packing up the trunk and he could not get the bags in and he couldn't shut the trunk. And all of a sudden the car starts bouncing and he's like, he's just like frantically like pushing this bag, like almost like he's giving the car CPR. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like cussing. I mean, it's just like, you know, that sort of shit is funny.
3: Do you think you have an anger problem, Brad?
1: No, no. But I, I, you know, I've got... You don't
3: lot... seem like you would, but sometimes people surprise you.
1: No, I mean, I, 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 I don't, but I, I have had, you know, I'm a human being. So I have moments where like I, I am short, uh, or I'll raise my voice just a little bit. Like I don't like any of it. I don't think it's, yeah. I don't think it's good to speak in anger. I don't think it's good to act in anger. It's not effective, is you know. Yeah, just,
3: that's the main thing I've learned is like, like, like I'm definitely an impulsive person. Um, so when I get upset, I just try not to say anything or react. Yeah. Until I've caught myself.
1: Well, so, No, I mean that's like the my, my general mode is like if you're angry, you shouldn't uh, communicate, which like yeah. isn't necessarily always what people how people operate or how we you know I've been told to operate. You know, it's like express yourself and blah blah blah, but you're in a state of anger you're you're feeling hot uh under the collar (laughs) at all like it's not a good idea you should wait like get out of the room go for a walk cool off don't
3: send that email
1: don't send yeah don't send the email i've learned that the hard way and you Mm -hmm. know um the only time that i think like and this is sort of this is another thing i need to fix is like if i'm on a, a customer service call there's something really easy about being inhuman to customer service representatives, and yeah, and I think it's inhuman not only uh, on the part of somebody like me who might be like unnecessarily rude or angry because you know I have a genuine, uh, you know, um, problem. You know, I have a genuine case to be you know to be made that something's not right, and so I'm calling this customer service representative, and I'm angry or I'm being not nice, and that's shitty. But what I
3: also well, I mean, like, I think anger can be powerful, too, because sometimes you need like I try not to be shitty to the person because usually they have absolutely nothing to do with the thing that I'm upset about. Um, but sometimes you're not getting what you need. And so then you need to speak to a manager and sometimes you need to act like a bitch to that's talk right. To the person who's going to fix the
1: problem. Well, that's what I was uh, just going to say. Is that like the, the inhumanity of the situation is twofold. Like one, it's shitty to be um, impolite, no matter how justified you might be. Um, you know, it's just not good to do that. But the the other side of the coin is that you know these people who work in customer service are essentially like human shields for mm-hmm. for the executives who make these decisions and who are ultimately responsible or often responsible for the problem. And so they're not the ones down in the trenches dealing with the customer. It's these people who are making like eight bucks an hour. And I don't know. I've always imagined. And
3: that seems like really shitty to treat someone like that bad because they're just doing their job.
0: Exactly,
1: But it's also frustrating because it's like, put me on the phone with someone who truly deserves my ire, you know?
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Uh, okay. So you, uh, get your GED, you go to this, um, you know, therapeutic boarding school and you, you get your shit together. A little bit,
3: um, it took a while. Like, I stopped being obviously like a mess um, after I got out of the boarding school, but then I was still a mess up until like my mid 20s.
1: Like, substance, yeah. Okay, so what were you? What was your thing? Were you booze?
3: Uh... Um, I went through phases with um, most of the drugs, um, but like right before I got sober, I would like to. Who drink a lot of alcohol and then mix that with opiates and benzodiazepines. And usually the opiate was methadone. And usually the benzodiazepines were this thing called
1: fresteril. God, that's dangerous. I have a, a buddy. Yeah,
3: with, no shit. <laughs> I, have a, I
1: have a buddy who died uh, from methadone, you know.
3: Yeah, methadone's like really dangerous stuff, but I didn't, like, I knew that it was dangerous, but I thought it was dangerous in the way that you're not supposed to take alcohol with Vicodin. And then after I stopped doing drugs, then I realized that that was, like,
1: really not smart. Yeah, no, it's like, I, I want to say methadone the number one leading uh, killer, you know, accident, yeah. accidental overdose. Because people think it's got this sort of benign um, identity because people take it to wean themselves off of heroin and, you know, it's powerful and holy cow. Well, so
3: this you're, is another thing I didn't know, which is that when you combine it with benzodiazepines, then the effect, like you actually get legitimately high off of it. Um, so that what, was one reason why I liked it so much.
1: What's a benzo? This is how it. It's made, like Valium
3: you know, or Xanax or Klonopin.
1: Oh right, yeah, and it's not good to mix those. Um, I, well,
3: it's good to mix them if you want to get high.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no. That's what my buddy was doing. <laughs> yeah. Um. Damn. So you're lucky to be here.
3: Yeah, that's how I feel. So
1: And and so, like, with regard to the mental illness and the meds that you were taking to maintain your bipolar disorder, and then you you start throwing in all this booze and all these pills and, uh, you know, God knows what else, like, that must have had an effect. Yeah.
3: What kind of effect do you mean?
1: Well, I just mean, like, couldn't it undermine the medicinal (laughs) impact of the meds that you take to to, uh, help your bipolar? Like, did it ever make you swing back into some sort of manic state or...
3: Um, I think, like, mostly I was self-medicating in that I was just, like, so dumbed down um, that I didn't really go anywhere. But in, like, 2007, I stopped taking my medication, and so I was, like, drinking, like, around the clock to kind of um, try and get rid of that. And that was bad because a lot of times the alcohol would just do the opposite. And instead of bringing me down, it would just give me the fuel to get worse.
0: God, man. Okay.
1: And so, uh, what about the writing? Like, like when did you start to nurse like a literary ambition in the middle of all this was like writing, Um, was writing some sort of therapeutic activity for you or.
3: I like, I had this idea of myself that I never wanted to be a writer and it was just something that sort of happened. But then I went through like my old report cards and papers somewhat recently and realized that that was not the case. Um, like I've written, since you write you know um but it was never anything serious i'm like i didn't revise anything or like think of myself as a writer but apparently i did want to be a writer when i was younger
1: you, um, you did or you did not
3: i did i think i might have just like said that because i didn't know what else to say
1: what about reading were you reading I've,
3: yeah, I, um, I'm an only child, and my parents were, like, careful not to spoil me, but they bought me whatever books that I wanted, and I read constantly.
1: Okay, so did who were who who was big for you? Like, especially I'm thinking of this, like, high school period. Like, were there authors that you leaned on?
3: Yeah, I went through a period in, like, my later high school, when I actually wasn't in high school anymore, where I was, like, reading the most fucked up books that I could find. Um, <laughs> like, I liked Geek, Lava, Bots. A lot. Um, and then there's this book by Ryu Murakami called Koi Mocker Babies. Um, and I liked that kind of book. And then when I was younger, I really liked Essie, Essie Hinton. I liked Christopher Pike, like the horror books. Um, I liked. Wait, the, the ho- horror books
1: or horror books? H O R R O okay. R, that
3: kind of book. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. All right.
3: And then um, this writer called Francesca Lia Block, um, she, like I think, was influential on me in a lot of ways
1: okay so where did you go after uh high school after the ged did you stay in san diego
3: yeah i did the community college thing for a long time like i would take like one class and then work a bunch or i would take three classes and then not go to them um that kind of thing um and then eventually i had finished that stuff so then i went to real college
1: where'd you go to real college
3: um, I went to University of California, Riverside, which was kind of an accident because no one wants to go move to Riverside.
1: I just drove through Riverside on my way to Palm Springs. The desert is yes. desert's crazy. I mean, it's a, it's beautiful, but it's also, I'm just like, what the fuck is going on out here? Yeah. Do you live there?
3: Yeah, I, I, uh, well, I would, like, would stay four days a week there, and then the weekend I'd come here.
1: Okay. Come to home. Where did you live? In some sort of dormitory or?
3: I had like the first year I lived in student housing, and I was older by that time. I was, I think, I was twenty-four when I started college, um, like real college. And so the second year I just lived in this apartment that was in like the quote-unquote unnice part of Riverside, meaning that it was just a bunch of Hispanic families, and therefore not not nice at all. It's like perfectly safe, but it was it wasn't white.
1: Right. Right and so were you? Were you sober? You said you went. You started at Riverside. No, you were not. No,
3: I I was doing the pills and the alcohol thing.
1: Okay, but still getting grades and you got your degree.
3: Yeah, like I don't really understand how that worked because like the last um, quarter in college, I was taking like um, over double the units. That's full time, as well as applying to grad school. Um, but I did that, so that's cool of me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Multitasking.
3: <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't think I really did much else besides, like, hang out with my boyfriend and then, like, get fucked up with my friends, like, one night a week. And...
1: But you were maintained, like, you were walking around campus and going to class under the influence.
3: Um, I took pills at school, but I didn't drink. Oh, except for, like, my night classes.
1: All right. And what were your parents, were your parents uh, aware of what was happening?
3: Um, I think Halfway.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so hard because you get to a certain age and as a parent, like, what can you do? You know, your kids live in some other town going to school or you can't be, you can't be sitting there next to him watching him 24 hours a day. You sort of have to take the hands off the wheel.
3: And then plus like the measuring stick, like according, like, um, in comparison of how I was as a high schooler, it was way better. So,
1: yeah. So they're like, "Well, she's not as fucked up as she used to."
3: be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty sad, but that's my that was my existence.
1: Yeah. Okay. So when did you get sober? What age? Um,
3: I was twenty-six.
1: All right. And what prompted that that final? What was the last straw?
3: Um, There's a lot of small things, but the big thing was um, I had to get my liver tested every six months for the medication that I was on for bipolar, um, and it had been fine. But then all of a sudden, it was really, really not fine. Um, so the doctors were like, oh, that's weird. Um, you don't say you don't drink that much. What's going on with that? Um, so then I kind of got freaked out by that and decided that maybe I should try and quit drinking for a month to see if that was maybe why my liver was fucked up. Um, and then when I tried to quit drinking, I was like shaking and sweating and not sleeping and not eating. And it was really, really hard for me. So I was like, fuck, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Great. Um, plus then a, a bunch of other small things such as, I don't know, a bunch of other small things that were going on.
1: Like relationship stuff.
3: Um, well, I was going to New York to do grad school. And um, like I was like, okay, if I can barely struggle to keep afloat in college, then what the hell am I going to do in grad school? Like, What's the point of me going if I'm just going to fail out? And in New York, there's a lot of cocaine. There's a lot of heroin. Um, you can buy beer on the clock. You can go to bars until 4. Yeah, no,
2: You it's don't not. have
3: to worry about a DUI. Um, so I was scared of that. And then plus, like, I was starting to get, like, I think it's called reverse tolerance where I started to black out off of not very much alcohol. And then.
1: Wait, wait, that's um, a th- That's a thing.
3: I, I don't know. Like, someone told me that. I don't know if that's true or not.
1: Well, I've seen it. I have a friend. I mean, I you can I can picture the look on his face. Like, it's, un- yeah. it's unbelievable. He's, like, the greatest guy in the world uh, with one or two beers, but, they're like, the third beer, it's over. And, like, he gets this, well, like, thousand-yard stare and just turns into a moron.
3: Yeah, and I used to not black out that much, um, but then all of a sudden I started doing it kind of a lot.
1: Oof. So. so, okay, so did you just go cold turkey?
3: Um, I stayed on the Restoril for another three months, but I took it as prescribed, which was for sleep, um, and Wait, I think what, what that is, what helped. Is,
1: what is Restoril?
3: It's a, it's the same drug family as Valium and Xanax, but um, it's usually used for sleep. But it also makes you feel really, really good. So,
1: so it's like an antidepressant, or
3: no, it's a um, well, they I think they're to relax people, essentially.
1: Okay, but that helped you get sober.
3: Um, no, it was like, like people recommended that I didn't take it, but I wasn't sleeping. Um, and I also wasn't like really ready to give it up, but I think it helped because like I didn't go to rehab or anything and I think I should have. Um, so I think it made the withdrawal like not as bad as it
1: would have been otherwise. Did you do like, uh, any group 12 step stuff? Yeah. You did. Okay. That's good. That's, that, that seems therapeutic. I'm always... I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but I'm always a little bit leery when somebody just gets sober on their own because it's such a big cat to skin.
3: <laughs> well, I've seen people do it and they seem to do it pretty effectively, but for me, I'm not like disciplined enough on my own.
1: Well, and it's, but, but it's also like you need some support and you need some mm-hmm. you need some therapy because if, if you're at the point where you're getting sober, then you've been through some shit and you've done some shit that you probably regret and like you got to parse that and... You know? I don't know. That's how I would... Yeah,
3: I mean I think like twelve step groups for most people who go to them are really tough because you don't like most people don't like listening to rules, they don't like being told what to do. They are um don't like the idea of brain being brainwashed or whatever, like even more so than the average person. But if you can get past that, like it was immensely beneficial to me.
1: Did you get spiritual so. or were you spiritual beforehand?
3: I was, like, a complete atheist um, beforehand, and now I don't know what, like, the answer to that. Like, I believe in something. Um,
1: just a higher power. I think
3: I, I think I am spiritual, but I just don't want to admit to it because I don't like that word. Right. I right. think that's what
1: it is. It's freighted with all sorts of yeah. meanings and uh, judgments and whatnot. I've, yeah,
3: it makes me sound like an asshole white
1: person. Well, and it's also like, yeah, exa- or some sort of, like, um, quasi-bohemian or, you know, I, like... Like the where I am with it is, uh, I don't know, but that also means that like, I don't know that there's not anything.
3: <laughs> yeah. I feel positive that there is something. I just have no idea what that something is.
1: Yeah. I think it defies language. And I think like yeah. there's some, some sort of connectivity. You can sort of feel it and, uh, you can feel like you're connected to something larger. I don't know. I think that's, yeah, okay. and
3: it's, I think the more you attempt to tap into that thing, like I don't, try to define it at all whatsoever because it just trips me up. Um, but I think if you try to tap into that thing, then it becomes more and more obvious that there is something there, or at least that's how it's
1: been for me. So do you do anything? I mean, I'm assuming you go to meetings or something like that, but do you have, do you have like any kind of uh, practice that helps you stay on the straight and narrow or keeps you from, you know, falling into a funk?
3: It depends. Um, I mean, I do pray, but I don't know what I pray to, and it's not like conventional prayer language that I use. Um, So I don't really know if I'm just talking to myself or what, but that does really help me. Um,
1: Do you you experience tangible results?
3: I've experienced things that seem like too coincidental to um, be coincidental.
1: Okay. Pray for me.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I mean, like, that word, of course, is, like, fraught with things. Like, sure. I grew up really not liking religion, and, like, the word God, the word prayer, they all made me cringe.
1: Isn't so. it, it's amazing how human beings can ruin words, you know? Yeah, we, yeah. We, we, I don't like it either. and But I think, like, just being aware of the, the fact that you don't like it and being aware of these um, unhelpful uh, meanings, you know, is you've, that's half the battle right there.
3: Yeah, and I mean, like, it wouldn't be a word if it wasn't a useful word. And so it's like, well, what else are you doing? Um, it's not praying. So why don't you just say you're praying and get over your stupid little thing about it?
1: Yeah. But it doesn't, I mean, it's like the word God, you know, like it's a, I don't know. Like it, There's a part of me that's like, we should, we should just start over. Like no more using that word because it's not helping.
2: Yeah. Or it's, I agree. It's, it's
1: hurting more than it's helping and everyone's laying claim to it. And, and then like I've also, you know, because I I've, I've in the past described myself as an atheist, but usually more of like in some sort of like posture, like I'm I'm like defending my like lack of religiosity or something, but
3: I think that's what I was doing when I identified as an atheist. It was just like whatever fuck you there is no god.
1: That yeah. Kind of, well, yeah, and it's like it's like I feel like people who are super hardcore in that direction are the other side of the coin of people who are super hardcore in the religious direction. Like Yeah. Just I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think everything is interconnected. I think that's demonstrable. I have no idea what is causing that to happen, (laughs) but I'm properly awed. How does that sound?
3: That sounds good. I agree. I mean, I feel like it's arrogant to try and think that we know everything. Um, Yeah, I feel very similar to you.
1: Okay. So uh, you're headed for New York Uh, Mm -hmm. or did you get sober in New York?
3: Um, I spent the first 25 days of being sober here in san diego and then i drove across the country and then on my 30th day i ended up in new york um so that's not what you're supposed to do but that's what i did and
1: it what? worked oh wow so you haven't had it you haven't slept at all
3: no knock on wood
1: knock on wood good for you congratulations thank you uh and i i think like you know the It seems like you have a a self preservation instinct. I mean, just Mm -hmm. like you were making plans. You're like, okay, I'm moving to New York. I need to get sober. This is not going to end well for me if I live in like a land of 24 hour access and, um, you know, cocaine on every corner and whatnot. Like, you seem to have, I mean, that indicates a person who wants to live well and who has uh, at least some part of her shit together.
3: Yeah, that's what's confusing about my personality is because I have, like, such a destructive streak, um, but I also have that self-preservation instinct in me.
2: Thank
1: God. And that
3: one's stronger, but it's very confusing. I'm, I confuse the shit out of myself often.
1: Well, you and me both. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, not meaning not meaning you confuse me, but I confuse
3: Yeah, you, you confuse yourself.
1: Yeah, easily. I'm amazing at that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think people are weird.
1: Uh, okay. So did you head to New York with writing on the brain?
3: Yeah, I was going to grad school.
1: Where'd you go? I mean, for the, to the MFA situation? Yeah,
3: I went to Brooklyn college.
1: Okay. And you wanted to go to New York. You wanted to be where the action is. I mean, was it was, yeah. it was strategic. Yes. And did, did it live up to your expectations?
3: Um, yes and no. I mean, I think it was the right thing for me. Um, I think it helped me, um, in multiple regards. Um, but you know, like you don't have to get your MFA. You don't have to move to New York. I think I needed to at that point in my life, but
1: is it, is it know. a is it a hard place to live?
3: Yeah. I mean the first like couple years when I was in grad school, it was decent, but like the third year was tough and I just didn't really see the point of it being tough. Like, you know, people act like living in New York is this big accomplishment. Um, And to me, I would have rather spent my time writing than living in some stupid city that's overpriced and overrated. Um,
1: Well, the rent is going to be great in West Virginia, I I can tell you. Yeah,
3: no shit. You can get, like, the coolest house for $800 that, like, has, like, three or four bedrooms.
1: Holy cow. Yeah, no, yeah. My, my wife and I, like, we look online, we torture ourselves with this, because we're in Los Angeles, which isn't New York expensive, but it's, you know... It's, it's about close. It's close, and we are looking at, like, you know, what you get for the money in different cities, and it's just like, oh, look, you know, it's you start to have these, like, it's like real estate porn, you know?
3: Yeah, like, we can get the cutest little house,
1: so... What is it, like, we're talking, like, a Victoria? Like, what's the real, what is the architecture there? Like, uh, um, craftsmen, or...
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's very different than what it is here.
1: I'll have to look. Maybe I'll... Yeah. I'll what city in West Virginia? Like a.
3: Well, Scott lives in Beckley, which I really don't like Beckley, um, but there's a city called Lewisburg that's about a half hour away, and so I'm hoping that we can move there sooner rather than later, and that's like, you know, you get off the, the interstate or whatever they call the freeway there, um, and you have, like, all the chain stores, and then you go a little bit further down, and it's Historic, quote unquote, and um, there's like you know like little um, coffee shops and stuff, you know, a, you know
1: coffee shop stuff. It's just yeah, like like it's that's quaint and livable, and you could picture yourself actually existing there and being happy. Yeah, and it's funny, and you know, I, sh- I think I talked about this with Scott when he was on this show, but it's like the, and I think I talked about uh, this with Giancarlo de Trapano, uh, mm-hmm. also a West Virginia man. Yes. And, but it's like, you know, West Virginia as a place is f- super fascinating, you know? like Well,
3: I mean, like the few people that I know from there, they have like this, um, like, I don't know what you would want to call it, like hardcoreness. but I feel kind of weird saying hardcoreness.
1: Um No, I, I think Gian and Scott both qualify <laughs> yeah. in their ways. I mean, my God. And there, there's also like a real um, authenticity Uh you know?
3: Yeah. I mean, I like the attitude, um, from what I've
1: seen so far, so far, you're going to find out more in West yep. Virginia. Uh, okay. So your writing career, uh, vis-a-vis graduate school. Like I'm imagining you had been writing stuff to get into graduate school and then you get there and you get hooked into uh, electric literature and you start to, mm-hmm. meet, you start to meet people. Like, is, is it all of this cracked up to be to live in Brooklyn? Like you, you meet a lot of writerly people. Did you make a lot of good connections there?
3: Yeah, and I also think I was, like, um, more innocent in a lot of ways than I quickly became. And that was nice, but also, like, kind of uncomfortable at the same time, because I think a lot of times I was acting in a way that I wanted to be. Um, But I don't know if I was actually good at that, because I think I still, like, my personality was definitely
0: still there. Wait,
1: what do you... I'm not sure what you mean.
3: Like, you know like i wanted to be like a nice like normal person with their shit together who writes like a nice like story that looks like how stories are supposed to look and has the pacing of how stories are supposed to look and talks eloquently and doesn't get all like like what i'm doing right now where i'm getting really kind of vague with my language
1: honestly. no but i understand i understand what you're saying and like it, it can be sort of like a crazy to think about when you imagine the gatekeepers and how many of them there are, you know, relative to the population. It's not that many people who are making decisions about what gets out there in terms of, mm-hmm. me- in terms of media, especially, uh, you know, where the money goes, what really gets, uh, financial support and what really gets pushed out into the culture. Yeah. And so there seems to be, you know, some sort of groupthink happening because a lot of this stuff looks the same way. And, you know, you can sort of feel it when you're reading a book that's like a popular memoir or like a popular uh, work of literary fiction that somehow makes it out uh, and gets a little sunlight on it. You know, and and I don't know. It's like who's who's making the? How did this happen? I guess it just I guess it just comes from people being in those roles and knowing one another and talking to one another and reading what one another publish, and somehow it just becomes the consensus.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that people publish and push the people that they like. And I don't really understand how people decide that they like someone, but you know, it's friends helping out their friends and that's how these things work for the most part.
1: It's amazing how naive I was. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> I had no idea. It's like, and then, you know, I do a show like this. I've been in the, in these waters for a while, but like you start to realize who knows whom and you start to see how it works. And it's like, Oh my God, this is just like a back scratching game.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I mean, at least to Which some extent.
3: Is, I mean, you can look at it from a negative perspective, like a cynical perspective, or you can just look at it and be like, okay, well, that's how people are like, they want to help out people that they care about. And there's nothing negative about that. It's actually kind of nice. So you can, I mean, I look at it from both ways, depending on what mood I'm in.
1: Yeah, no, so. me too. Me too. And I just, I guess the thing is, is that like, you know, it becomes a game of privilege at a certain point or in some yeah, in some definitely. respects. And it's like, who, you know, who you've had access to. And, um, you know, hopefully the quality of the work is paramount, but sometimes,
3: sometimes it's just not like some of the stuff that people are telling me, um, is good. Is just like not good. Right. Well, and it's no. also,
1: and it's, and it becomes a game of splitting hairs because there's a lot like, let's face it. Like there's lots of work that is, uh, uh, you know, has merit and is worth pushing, but it's like the person who, you know, went to prep school or could pay the the New York rent and got to know so-and-so who gets the push. I guess that's just the way how that's how the world works in any business or any.
3: Well, and even things like internships, like if you intern at the Paris Review, generally you came from a privileged background already.
1: Sure. Yeah. I was just reading about Peter Matheson who just died and, you know, he came from money and, uh, George Plimpton came from money and it was just like this. I mean, it's got a great literary tradition and, and I don't mean to bag on those guys because I think they were um, good. They sounded like good dudes, you know, but it's like, man, and and then you just think of the names of publishing houses. It's like family mm-hmm. name, like Simon and Schuster, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. those are just rich families and they just were like, you know what, I'm going to take some of this money and start a publishing house and, you know, make books and spend my summers in the Hamptons or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's always been that way or, you know, and, and it really hasn't been around. Much longer uh, than 100, and, what 125, 130 years, and it's semi-present form, you know. Yeah, I don't know.
3: That sounds about right to me,
1: though. Um, but I do think it's changing. Like, do you feel like a part of any kind of like a, I don't know, any kind of significant cha- change in literature? Like, a, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that you feel like you're spearheading it or something, but
3: well. When I started at, um, my grad program in 2009, like that was when people started talking about the death of literature and the internet is ruining things, eBooks are ruining things, that kind of shit. And I feel like since 2009, the attitude has changed significantly and people are kind of seeing that it's not destroying it. It's just changing it. And that change is definitely interesting to me. And I respect people who, um, whose work reflects that and like actually think about the reader and what the reader wants now, as opposed to what the reader wanted 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting to me.
1: Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Like, why would you not respond to it? It's like, and I guess, you know, you saw this with like writers like DeLillo and and David Foster Wallace, like responding really deeply to like television and literature Mm -hmm. and, you know, what everybody... I think
3: it's just respectful. Like, if, if you are writing the way that someone wrote in the 70s, then you're a fucking asshole. And so maybe you should, like, try and think about what other people's attention span is doing and what they want and not just try to, like, jerk yourself off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny is that you say that and then uh, I hear myself agreeing. Like, uh, But at the same time, like, when I... Like, part of my naivete when I came out into the world of publishing, uh, you know, from graduate school or whatever, is that I had this really antiquated view of publishing and sort of had Mm -hmm. this idea of how the business worked that was rooted in some sort of, like, you know, fantasy of uh, days of yore, like the golden age, essentially.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I did, too. I wanted to go get my MFA in New York. Like, of course, yeah, so.
1: Yeah, and then, you know make all this money and get to live in some foreign country and write books. And it's a nice fantasy.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it sure is. Isn't it? But then again, also I knew like I had heard and I had known that if you want, to make money and have a glamorous lifestyle, then you probably shouldn't be a writer.
1: Yeah. But everyone's heard that. But so you always think like, I'm going to defy those odds. It's going (laughs) to be, you know, I would love to see that. Like they, they really need to be uh, more transparent about the money. I want to know who's actually doing it. There's, you know,
3: yeah, I would like to know that as well,
1: especially in literary fiction. There's got to be like, you know, literary fiction, literary nonfiction. Maybe there's like, what, 500 people,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: maybe less, maybe more. I don't know. interesting to know. So when it comes to, uh, Black Cloud and the writing Mm -hmm. of, uh, was this something you were working on at Brooklyn college?
3: Um, I had written, uh, I think three of the stories while I was in that program, maybe more. Um, and I wasn't really thinking of doing a short story collection.
1: And you were, I mean, but when you're writing, I mean, you mentioned thinking of the the reader and... Um, something all writers could stand to do more of, you know, but mm-hmm. like how did that factor into the composition of the book and the stories in it? Because it's tough material, you know, it's gritty. Um, you're, yeah. you're asking readers to go to some pretty dark places, but um, you know, in in, ter- in terms of its uh, structure, in terms of the way you deliver, like was it a reaction to, um, you know, the world we live in now and the internet and whatnot in a really explicit way? I
3: think like without me intending to, but then, um, Like once I saw what I was doing, I went with it more because I thought it was a good idea. And what I'm talking about is just making things short and to the point and like as quick as you can get them to go without leaving stuff out.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm doing, I'm thinking now this like blogging that I've been doing and it's on such a short turnaround and it's nerve wracking to me because I always feel like there's, you can always cut more.
3: Yeah. I read your thing about the, the, um, dude on the t
1: shirts I really liked that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that one, I feel like I I spent time on and pared down and that was like over several days, but when I don't have enough time to compose and I'm doing it in like quick turnaround in like 24 to 48 hours, um, I'm always feeling like I should have taken more of a knife to it and then you reread it and you see all that you left on the bone. And it's hard to, to you know, it's this really um, painstaking work. You gotta, you know, I, I'm thinking of Sarah Manguso, who I had on this show I don't know if you ever read her stuff. No. I feel like you would like her because, like, talk about paring it down. And then I just read uh, Jenny Offal's new book.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, Jenny was one of my teachers at Brooklyn College.
1: Oh, no shit. Well, her new book is, her new book to me is like the best. Uh,
3: Yeah, I really like her as a person and a teacher. So I want to read that.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, to me, I, I have great admiration for it as a work of fiction. It does everything that I want like a work of fiction to do. And you just feel like. I
3: didn't did you see that html giant like anonymous review of it no it was like kind of bullshit because it was anonymous um and it like was talking it was essentially taking that book and saying like here's what's wrong with academic lit and that seems like such a cop-out and such a cheap shot to me and Mm. i thought it was
1: dumb no because okay you know like i've i've been trying to figure out what it is that I respond to in books. And I think mm-hmm. it's, I, I love when writers are sort of writing for their lives. And I know that can sound a little melodramatic, but it's the truth. Like you feel, you feel the urgency and, you yeah. know, and when there's an urgency, like uh, in, you know, if the writer is coming from a place of emotional urgency, then there's an urgency and a vitality in the writing itself. Um, mm-hmm. I also like when there's a very thin membrane in between uh, the work, if it's fiction and the author's life. I just do. That's just, I agree. I want, I don't, I like when I'm like, okay, this is their life and they're just making art with it. But I know that this is their life. And I definitely got that sense with, uh, Jenny's book. Um, and it was just, I don't know. It just felt so emotionally powerful. And she does this, uh, POV switch at the end. And, you know, she just happens to work in academia and she's a writer. And I don't think it's, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's fair to denigrate it as like academic fiction or whatever, because, you know, I know there is such a thing, and I know that there are iterations of that that can be annoying, but I don't know. Department of well, Speculation she, isn't one of them.
3: She struck me as a very strange woman, and I mean that in, like, the best way because I don't like people who aren't strange. Like, I don't like people who are trying to be strange, but I don't want – I don't like boring people. Surprise. <laughs> right. I don't think that's a unique thing. Um, yeah, and I don't think she's faking it or posturing
1: So, yeah, yeah. yeah. she's brilliant. So, um, you know, what else? Like, do you feel like now that this book is rolling out, like we were talking a little bit before we came on the air, like it's a little nerve wracking once the, once it's, you released it into the wild and it's no longer, you know, on your hard drive exclusively.
3: Yeah. I mean, like I, like a lot of writers, I think, am kind of obsessive and hard on myself. Um, but I try to talk myself out of
1: that shit. You working on something else?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Which I think is like it's the healthy thing to do, but I don't think writers do that all that often when they're at this point when a book is rolling out. It's like they should just put their nose to the grindstone, forget about the book that just got released, and just get back to work. But it's hard not to like Google yourself and <laughs> check the yeah. Well, because
3: I lost my job recently, which was like sounds bad, but it was actually pretty fucking awesome. So, I have enough free time that I'm able to spend some time writing.
1: That's good. And then, you know, yes. you do have to do some of the promotional stuff. You got to talk to me. You got to. Yes. Which I know is grueling. Oh, it's so awful, Brad. <laughs> um, but, like, what are your hopes? You know, do, do you have defined hopes for the book?
3: Um, I mean, I feel like this is definitely my first book, and it's probably going to stand as such. I mean, it's a little. Um, it's about drugs, um, so I hope to like get more difficult and longer with the next work. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I I like this book. I think other people will like it. I think hopefully they'll respond to it.
1: You going to write a memoir?
3: Um, I don't, not like a traditional one, and it's definitely going to have like fiction in it.
1: Okay. I get that. I mean, yeah, you're just going to spin it a little bit, but all memoirs fiction anyway. But I mean, yeah, you, but
3: I mean, like this is deliberately going to be okay. Here is fiction, and you're, this you're, is not.
1: You're going to start. And this, you're going to start flying. <laughs> <We're> just, <yeah>.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and then here is something that I'm not going to tell you whether it's fiction or not fiction, and it doesn't matter. So deal
1: so with it. Are you pretty prolific? I mean, do you feel like you can get no, one? no. Scott like, I mean Scott McClanahan. I want I want to find out why that dude is so prolific. Have you seen him work? Like He's
3: he's really really obsessive and like he's like it's his compulsion. Okay. Um and like I like writing. I feel the need to write. I feel more engaged when I'm writing than almost anything else or anything else. Um but I don't constantly need to do it the way he does.
1: He's he's doing it constantly. Constantly. Wow, what there's a name for that? I want to say Stephen King has this thing where like it's compulsive writing. I mean, I
3: think.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. He's getting like ten thousand words on the page a day. It's just to me that seems just completely insane.
3: It makes me <laughs> extremely jealous.
1: Yeah, me too.
3: Like, like, I'm happy that he's working because it makes him happy, and I'm a big fan of his work, and I want him to continue to make amazing work. But at the same point, I'm just like, "Fuck you! Can I have some of that?"
1: Who's this, St- Scott or Stephen Scott. King? Oh, okay.
3: I don't. Stephen King, I don't. He's not on my radar. I sure.
1: But all the graphomaniacs of the world. Yeah. You know? Can
3: I, can I have it, uh, yeah. some of your drink?
1: Well, and I know, I mean, it's I, you know, I'm sure there's downsides to any kind of, there's always downsides to any kind of mania, but I've made like uh, similar comments about people with like ADHD who just have all that energy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You know, I can be sluggish and just mentally weary. And it's like, God, man, these people never turn off. Like, and they can get four hours of sleep. And, you know, uh, I used to, you know, I think people sometimes get like competitive about, uh, stress, which Mm -hmm. I've been guilty of in the past. And I find that as I get older, it's like, I I want at least seven hours of sleep every night, at least if I can get it. Like I'm, 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 that's not a badge of honor for me that like I can run on five hours of sleep the way that I used to talk about it. And and I also have trouble sleeping. So it's just like glorious when I'm actually rested and I feel like I do better work, but uh, I feel like I might be at a disadvantage because I have fewer hours in the day to be productive or something.
3: Well, that's another thing. Scott has really bad insomnia, and I used to have insomnia, but the medicine that I'm on now makes me sleep most of the time just fine. Like, lately I haven't been sleeping as much because not only do I have the book coming out, but I'm also moving and getting married and jobless and unemployment. It's, like, kind of fucking with
1: me, like the, Wait, the money getting, part. you're getting married?
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Congratulations. I didn't realize it was an engagement. Thanks. Wow, oh, all right. Well, you know, maybe... Uh We should do like a Newlyweds episode when you're in West Virginia. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
3: we're going to have some interesting fights.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah, just like, you know, go for the walk. That's what I'm talking about because, uh, you know, two emotional people, two uh, talented artists, you know, you got to make sure you monitor that.
3: Yeah. I mean, so far it's been good because... Like he understands where I'm coming from, and vice versa.
1: Meaning you, but you, I'm sure meaning, at some you, point
3: it's just going to get ugly, oh, yeah. and then hopefully it doesn't stay that way for too long.
1: It's like you're in San Diego, he's in West Virginia.
3: <laughs> yeah. But,
1: yeah. Well, uh, I wish you well. I'm sincerely happy for you guys. That sounds. Well, thank uh, you, Brad. Sounds exciting. It's, uh, and I'm also very happy for you with regard to this book. Congratulations on its, uh, its release. And thank uh, you. I wish you well, uh, both with uh, your writing and, and with uh, your new. Life in West Virginia. Well,
3: you too. I really like what you've been doing with the other PPL.
1: Okay, there you go. That's Juliet Escoria. Go get her book. It's called Black Cloud. It's available now from Civil Coping Mechanisms. You can find her online at JulietteEscoria.com. She's on the Twitter where her handle is at JulietteEscoria. She's on Instagram. She's on Facebook. Go track her down over there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars. As usual, for all the great music, be sure to check out Kill Rockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to go get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now wherever apps are available. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload. You don't have to do anything. Uh, best of all, you can access premium content via the app. Every single episode, the entire archives, uh, all for only two dollars a month, or four ninety nine for six months of access, or uh, I believe what seven ninety nine, eight ninety nine for the full year. It's very cheap and uh, it's the best way to hear my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tom Parada, Cheryl Strayed, uh, Sheila Hetty, Roxane Gay, uh, etc. Tons, hundreds. You can access all of that within the app. You get the app, you sign up for premium right there within the app, and then you have everything everywhere you go at your fingertips. How is that for uh, convenience and value? So that was a nice uh, podcast. I felt like that was a nice episode. I felt like we got a good one, Juliet and I, and, you know, to be honest with you, I usually feel that way after I have these uh, phone calls or these in-person interviews, my only criteria really, and I always say this, uh, you know, not on the air, but when I'm talking about the show, my only criteria really for making any kind of uh, evaluation is honesty or uh, a genuine attempt at honesty. As long as that happens, I feel good about things. And I feel like I usually get that from people. Unless they're fooling me. Unless uh, I'm simply uh, a rube, a naive man who is being manipulated by authors on publicity tours. Is that what's happening? Maybe I'm just a rock in the mud that people step on as they ascend uh, the mountain of fame I have no idea Please remember that Roll Dahl died of leukemia And that the word ghetto Originally meant foundry That's it for now Thanks again to Juliet uh, Miss Escoria. Go get her book uh, Thanks to you guys for listening I appreciate that And uh, I will be back on Sunday uh, With another conversation And uh, right now I need to go exercise That's how I feel I feel groggy I need to go uh, move around I need to wring myself out Need to break a sweat, uh, you know. I'm one of those people. I need to be wrung out on a regular basis. I always tell my wife this. I have a theory. I say, you know, if you don't break a sweat on a regular basis, then it's it's like not flushing the toilet of your body. <laughs> it's how you get rid of toxins. It's how you regulate. You know, these toxins they build up in your body, and you have to flush them out. So if you're not exercising. That is tantamount to not flushing the toilet of your body. Flush the toilet of your body is what I'm saying. (laughs) All right, that's obnoxious.